Welcome to this week's edition of the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward, and this week we are honored to welcome Alan Kay to the show. Uh, Alan is a wilderness survival expert, and he's also the winner of the very first season of the History Channel show called Alone, which if you haven't checked out, it's a phenomenal show. Essentially, the premise was that they were going to drop 10 people off into the wilderness, and season one was in Vancouver Island, and they essentially just had to survive. They had to build shelter, find food, find water, all of all of those great wilderness survival skills and techniques. And basically, they just had to survive by themselves as long as possible um, without knowing if other people quit or how many days they were going to be alone by themselves in the wilderness. So really interesting show, really interesting premise. Uh, I mentioned that it was it was a pretty good reality show in the fact that there was no setup BS <laughs> drama, you know. Uh, it essentially was the drama of having to having to survive in a very harsh, harsh uh, wilderness. So I wanted to have Alan on the show because I wanted to hear, of course, about the wilderness survival techniques. But really, the thing that fascinated me the most was kind of the mindset of isolation. So as someone's isolated out by themselves in the wilderness, what's going through their mind? How do they handle it? And how do they get by without anyone else around and what does that teach someone about themselves so really interesting conversation um i'm very excited to share it with you guys today before we get into that just a quick reminder uh if you enjoy the podcast go on itunes um leave us a review the reviews really help kind of spread the message of goodness that we're we're seeking to spread. Um, other than that, you can find the Like a Bigfoot podcast on all the fun podcasting apps out there. Um, you can look up all of our episodes and our archives on SoundCloud. And of course, you can just check out our website at likeabigfoot.com. All right, let's get into the episode uh, Like a Bigfoot podcast with wilderness survival expert Alan Kay. So welcome to the show, Alan Kay. Um, I, I'm having you on because last year I watched the uh, the Alone show on the History Channel, and I mean, uh-huh. first of all, what an like I'm not a fan of reality shows at all usually, but this one just totally captured my imagination because it didn't seem like there was anything like set up or anything. It was just like pure human drama of surviving in some some crazy crazy environments so uh could you kind of just give us like a the premise of the show for those who haven't seen it well the uh the object of the show is they took 10 individuals and uh, dropped us in different places over about 167 square mile area in the Pacific Northwest, uh, an area on native land owned by the Quatsino First Nation. And you were allowed to take 10 items 
from a list, and those items had to be approved to make sure they were within the parameters of what was allowed. And we were provided a satellite phone and a tap-out button <laughs> that also acted to uh, scramble a, a medevac in case you couldn't talk. If you could hold the red button down for five seconds, then it would automatically scramble uh, a medevac in case you were injured. Uh, so the, the idea, it was basically a competition to see who could last the longest. And the last person standing, uh, they would come and notify you that you were you were it. That's awesome. And you didn't you were you weren't able to tell when the other people tapped out. So like best of your knowledge this whole time, everybody's still in the game, you know. Um right? Right. Yeah, that's kind of the yeah, you're, cool... you're not it really is. You're not giving any updates as to what's going on in the world, what's going on at home. Um there's there's just not any contact like that. So the you know, I think going in, a lot of people thought that, you know, maybe finding enough food will be the hardest part or predators or anything like that. But in the end, what ended up taking a lot of people out is just the psychology. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to be isolated and, and have to sustain your own existence plus film it. I mean, we, we had no camera crew there, so we're having to film this thing by ourselves with this big pelican case full of camera gear and it's uh it, it was challenging for sure yeah. and i think one reason to, to your point why people love the show so much is there there wasn't any manufactured drama there really didn't need to be doesn't know exactly uh yeah it, it was you know you didn't have any anybody any producer or film crew there trying to dramatize it or to try to direct you in a certain way i mean what you really got to see the people and and their real struggles and interaction, you know, all of that was was totally organic, and uh, I think that's that's what resonates with people about this show. Yeah, definitely. Um, can I kind of I wanted to have you on because I was I've been pretty fascinated with kind of the mindset of isolation um, and survival, really. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I remember specifically reading <laughs> in elementary school reading Gary Paulson's book uh, Hatchet. Um, I don't know if you've ever yeah. read that, but it's about this kid who like crashes in a plane and he has to survive. And ever since reading that book and watching that movie, it's kind of been something that's been really fascinating and interesting with, or to me. Um, but uh, about the isolation, how did you, like, how did you handle that? Because you're right, that seemed to be on the show. I think there was like five or six people that lost or quit gave up within the first 10 days and then maybe the last four or five, uh, that's who, that, those are the people who really had to deal with the isolation. Yeah. I mean, obviously as, as the time goes on, the isolation becomes more and more of a factor in the psychology. Um, but the fact that you're, you were by yourself was, was an impact. I mean, it was definitely a factor even early on, like as soon as your boots hit the ground, there's uh there's this you have this epiphany of like oh wow what did i just do you know i just stepped <laughs> off a helicopter in the middle of this vast wilderness and yeah. i don't know anything about this wilderness and so here i am and anything that has to get done including the filming of it it's completely up to you and uh with with limited calories that can 
that can really be taxing after a while. Yeah, definitely. What what made you you know what where did you hear about this this show and what made you sign up and what was kind of your background going into it? Well, my friend Chris Weatherman, who was also on the show, he uh, I, I met him. I'd already known him, but but we we met at uh, Heritage Life Skills. It's an event in Waynesville, North Carolina, and I was teaching edible and medicinal plants and some other survival-related topics. And he was there. He's an author uh, of a very popular series of books called the Going Home series. And he was signing books and, you know, talking with his fans and things like that. And I had come in to fill up my canteen in between my weed classes where I'm walking people around showing them all the, the stuff that they spray Roundup on and how you can actually eat it and make medicine out of it. And just in passing there, he, he kind of told me the premise of the show and uh, that he was thinking about doing it. And I said, well, that sounds really interesting. And so I went on to teach my class and really didn't think any more about it. But uh, two weeks later, I got a call from New York, and he had given them my contact information. And so it just kind of went from there. That's awesome. So before that, though, like when did you get interested in survival or, you know, uh, being in the wilderness and and like you said, medicinal plants and all that stuff? Yeah, I've, I've spent my whole life in the woods ever since I was a boy, and I've, that's always been my safe haven, and I, I just love being there. And I think I had an awareness from early on in life how, how out of whack our modern civilization is, and I've always sought to know and understand, you know, how did people live before we had all this stuff? Because when you see the way we live now, post-industrial revolution, if you look on the timeline of humanity, you know, we haven't been doing this for very long. This is this is all still pretty new. You know, most of the human existence has been hunter-gatherer and people living in, in uh, mutually supportive tribes and groups and things like that. So it, uh, it just seems to me that it would be wise to reconnect with, with what it is to be a fully functioning human on the earth. You know, most, most people in modern times, uh, if you put them in their native habitat, just out on the land, they, they are no longer able to sustain their own existence and thrive there, which is, which is actually frightening. Uh, we become dependent on so many things. And, and, you know, instead of evolution, we've reached a point where it's de-evolution. I mean, we're devolving. We're, we're forgetting what it is to be a human. Uh, all of the basic core skills that you need to exist uh, out on the earth are just not being taught anymore uh, at least in, in a in a broad spectrum kind of way where everybody has access to it. You know, used to, you just learned it by virtue of your existence and being part of your tribe and your elders around you were teaching you all these things. And then we no longer do that. You know, now we, we go to school, we learn a bunch of stuff. We regurgitate that stuff so that we can pass standardized tests. Oh, don't even uh, get me started on, on those. <laughs> I'm a middle school teacher uh, most years when I'm not taking care of my daughter. So I understand standardized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like uh, just so the schools can be rated and get funding and all this kind of thing. Uh, not to say that there's not wonderful things in the school system, but the way that it's laid out, I think, is I mean, we're not really teaching critical thinking skills. We're not teaching, uh, you know, people how how to think. You know, we're just throwing a bunch of facts out there. And, and more importantly, we're not teaching them basic skills. Like, what does it take to maintain your core temp in any environment? Because that can kill you literally within hours. So people yeah. need to understand 
those concepts and, and they're not really complicated they're just not really being taught yeah so if, uh, if you had all of this if if you had to explain how to uh, stabilize your core temperature what are some of the founding uh like foundations of that well the first thing we have to do is we have to dress appropriately uh, i don't know if you recall but in atlanta a few years ago you had the people on the interstate just yeah. a little bit of snow and ice and they <laughs> they slept in their cars for four days yeah, yeah. i do i was i lived down in virginia at the time so i remember so we leave our house every morning with the assumption we're going to come back to that nice warm bed and we may not you know there's so many potential threats out there from cyber attacks to uh, grid failures it could be an earthquake to knock out the bridge that separates you from your home and now you don't have a means to get there and and so what you thought was just a, a quick day trip to work or school or to the store may turn into uh, in three days or even a week or more so the, the first step we have to do is we have to dress appropriately for the weather and for the environment in which we find ourselves uh, and for me, that, that usually means I avoid cotton clothing and I'm going to wear things like uh, polypropylene and wool, things that dry quickly. Uh, I'm going to dress in layers and I'm going to dress warmly enough so that if I needed to sleep out of doors, I'm, I'm properly clad for that. Uh, sometimes that's not enough. So having dressed correctly, it's, it's wise to carry things with us like maybe a sleeping bag or or a poncho or some type of a, a shelter system that we could we could quickly deploy and get into and sometimes that's not enough so then we know how to we need to know how to build shelters and structures out of the natural world um, so shelter construction is, is probably one of the most important skills and then behind that I would say fire you know and water procurement we're not gonna most Americans are not gonna die of starvation anytime soon we have we have a few extra pounds yeah, so, uh, you, you have quite some time on food, but, but it's mainly about maintaining your core tent and uh, getting some water to drink, and, and you, can, you can get through most short-term situations that way. Yeah, so when you were on the show and they dropped you off and now all of a sudden you're completely alone, how did you prioritize your tasks? What tasks needed to come first, and then which ones are you like, were you like, I can put this off for a few days? Well, obviously, food procurement was not something that needs to happen immediately. Uh, but you do need to be thinking about that. So, so my first pressing need was shelter because the weather up there is just horrific. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you really, you've got you've got to have shelter. So, but there's some there's some things that I questions that need to be answered before I make that decision of where am I going to place this shelter. And in, in that environment, I expected to be there. For, for a while, so it was semi-permanent. It wasn't like an emergency shelter that you're caught in a storm and you do just to get through the night. This was more of a semi-permanent dwelling. So I did a scout of the area, and my first question is always, where's the water? Where's my fresh water source that I'm going to be using? And so once I found that, uh, then I asked myself, okay, long-term, you know, what's going to be my resources as far as fuel for fires and uh, food procurement, what is there, what's the baseline that, that I can eat and live on out here? And in that environment, it was the intertidal zone, the, the space between high and low tides. So once these questions are answered, then uh, I, I look for something that's not too close to the water, but also not too far away from the water. Uh, and I also wanted to have a line of sight to the tide line so that I would know when low tide came, so that I would be able to go down and forage for food. 
And then I looked for what does nature already have to offer me instead of trying to build a log cabin from the ground up. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of building a sleeping bag. So that's, that's a common mistake. People make shelters way too big. They need to be very small uh, so that they can be easily, easily heated with, with your own body heat, if nothing else. Okay. Yeah. Cause the uh, bigger an area you know, is the easier heat's going to have to like dissipate away. That's correct. And then also you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to build this thing using primitive means like a knife or a saw or an ax or something like that. And so there's a, an investment in time and labor and calories and water that your body has to be powered on while you undertake this task. So you, you want to keep it no bigger than it just has to be. Uh, and I try to look for things like what does nature already have that kind of wants to be a shelter and I can come in and just kind of uh, enhance it a little bit. So I found a fallen log of a many hundreds year old tree that on its side was probably six feet high. And so that's one wall of the shelter that I don't have to build now because I'm using what nature already has there. And then I just built a, a basic lean-to frame up against that and then thatched it. And of course in cold temperatures, you want your walls to be really, really thick. And you want a fairly steep roof pitch, something where the water is going to run off of it really quickly. That, those are the two considerations for the exterior of the structure. And then one of the most important things that's often overlooked is conduction. You know, if you place your, your body on that cold ground, your body goes into overdrive trying to warm up that earth under you, and it just yep. can't do that. It can't win that battle. So you have, to, you have to have dead air space between you and the ground, and that can take many forms. Uh, up there on the island, you've got lots of limbs and things. So I use cedar limbs. I'd put them down the length of my body. And then I would take shorter sticks the size of, say, my thumb in diameter and just keep crisscrossing those sticks until I had about four or six inches up off the ground. And then you find things like ferns or grasses or leaves, and you, you shake those down into that little structure that you just built and keep layering them up. Uh, some people will just pile up leaves or ferns, but the problem is those will compress under your body weight and then you're right back to conduction. So I like having a, a framework of sticks underneath so that they that kind of gives you a, a limit of advance. It can't compress down any further than that. And you have the added benefit uh, if you're in a situation where water is going to be trickling through the ground there, uh, it keeps you up out of that water. So you're, you're both warm and dry and comfortable, but sleep is important in a long-term situation if you're not sleeping well. Uh, you're not going to be able to perform your physical task safely, and you're not going to be making good decisions. Yeah. How? What was your expectation going in? How long did you think you were going to have to survive for? I really didn't have one. You know, some people went in with a number in mind that they had a goal, and I, I I've learned long ago not to uh, be presumptive about things like that. I just kind of take it as I find it. And one day at a time, and I was just going to, the ultimate reason I was there was to test myself. So I was going to go until, you know, I just said, okay, I've had enough, or I hit a wall or something happened. And so I really didn't have any numbers in mind. I didn't know if I was going to be there three days or three weeks. And I've never been to that area before, so I really didn't have any experiential frame of reference about what living there would look like or what all it would entail and what, what it would require on my part. So I was just kind of... Uh, taking it day by day. Yeah. Did you ever have a moment where you came really close to quitting or, or pushing the button? 
No. <laughs> That's why you won. <laughs> That's awesome. So no, it just all, never all entered your were, mindset. No, all my needs were met. You know, I mean, food was was lean, but I was I was eating enough that that I could continue. Um, long term, you know, short term survival is all about what we see in the survival manuals: water, shelter, fire, food, all of that. But after you've been out there for a couple of weeks, you, you're already checking those boxes because if you weren't, you wouldn't still be there. You wouldn't be able to continue. Yeah. And so then you, you kind of get into a rut just like anybody has in their life. We have patterns of life. We get up, we go to work, drop the kids off, do this, do that. And so it's it kind of became that on the island there, you know, wake up and check low tide. And if the weather permitted, go out and get more grass for my mattress, constantly improving a shelter, um, you know, see what could be procured for food, top off my water, top off my wood supplies, and uh, just be really calculating about how you spent your energy. Yeah, definitely. What, uh, so as you were doing this, um, you know, you, you have everything set up, you're, you, like you said, you checked off the basic needs of survival. When, and, and you said it came in right away, the, the idea of isolation, but when did it become, I, I mean, I guess, when did it become a time where you didn't have many tasks and you basically just had free time and free time to just sit with that isolation? There was lots of that. Um, you know, hunter-gatherers spend very little hours of the day comparatively uh, to sustain their life, you know, in comparison to what we do now, you know, an eight hour work day just doesn't happen. I mean, yeah. it doesn't take me that long. It might, it might take me 30 minutes to go down and forage and collect the food that I want. It might take me another 30 minutes to prepare and consume that food. There's an hour. I may invest 30 minutes into wood procurement for that day, or even let's say an hour, there's two hours. Um, and maybe another half hour in water procurement. So two and a half hours and my job's done. <laughs> and the rest of the day is just there to, you know, observe and think and, and kind of plan with some degree what, you, what you're looking to do in the future and trying to find the patterns of whatever land you're dropped in and then figure out, okay, where do I fit into this? Where's my place out here, you know? Yeah, yeah. What a... Were there moments where, I mean, I got to imagine there were moments where you were like cursing the isolation and then other moments where you're relishing in it and enjoying it and liking that meditation or time to meditate or be peaceful with nature. Um, can you kind of share about maybe how you, how you dealt with those times? Yeah, the, the isolation part, I guess I'm predisposed to... Uh, do pretty well in, in that kind of a, of a life. You know, I guess for one thing, I was an only child, so growing up, I already felt pretty lonely anyway, you know? Yeah. Didn't have a lot of uh, structure and all of that, so you, you kind of learn to go inside of yourself and spend a lot of time inside your own head to figure things out instead of needing something external, somebody to talk to or bounce it off of. And so I think that helps, you know, and just being at peace with yourself. I mean, we've all got our regrets and our things in life that, you know, we all have our demons, I guess you could say. And, 
you know, in a situation where you're completely alone like that and you've got all that time, those things will come up. So if you haven't made peace with all of that or worked through your stuff, then, then you will. That's the time that it's going to, you're going to work through it. Yeah. 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 Definitely. There's, there's no, there's no distractions, you know, there's no cell phone or TV or other people. So, and it's, it's just silent. It's complete silence out there. Wow. So what, before you came to this project, what was the longest time you had spent in solitude like that? I don't know, maybe a, a week or a little more. Yeah. Just purposely on like a, a wilderness trip or, or just kind of by yourself? Yeah. Just, just out in the woods, you know, hanging out and, but you know, emotionally I've always felt kind of alone anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, some of the most, some of the most lonely times in my life are when I've been in the company of other people. Yeah, definitely. You're talking to a fellow only child here. So I, I get where you're coming from there, which is, which yeah. is interesting because I mean, I got to imagine most only childs are introverts. And, and so as an introvert, you are willing to put this these really like raw moments out on on television for the whole world to see um did that ever yeah. come into your mind at all or were you just like you've you accepted that that aspect of it well you know going into the project i knew what we were there ultimately for was to self-document so that this experience could be conveyed uh to the people at large just though you know, I kind of made an agreement with myself early on that I was just going to go in and suspend any ego around it and just be totally realistic and vulnerable and just whatever happened, happened. You yeah. Know, I, I didn't, I didn't go, I didn't go into it wanting to be portrayed as Rambo or yeah. <laughs> you know some kind of macho thing, you know. And and so if you're having <laughs> You know, if I'm having an emotional meltdown or whatever, then I just, I would share that, you know, it was just because we're all, you know, a human is such a, such a multifaceted creature. You know, we're, we're, we have our physical stuff, we're physical creatures, but we're also emotional creatures. We're spiritual creatures. We have all these sides to us, you know, and our modern culture is usually not supportive of some of that. You know, we, we wear a lot of masks in society. We try to sell this certain uh, picture of ourselves that we want to portray to the world. We want everybody to see us in a certain way. And, yeah, it's, to be real with the project, you had to just say, well, for better or worse, here's what I am. And yeah. there's no faking it. I mean, what when an experience like that, what comes out of you, you're being squeezed. There's a pressure there. And so what comes out of you is your essence. There's, you're just not... I don't think it would be possible to go out there and, and try to fake it, at least for long. You'd see all those layers strip away. Yeah, definitely. And you do during the show, which is what, what like I said, is what makes it a, a good reality show versus, you know, what 99% of them are out there, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Uh, um, how, uh, how did you, I mean, I know that there you're trying to go out there not with the purpose of entertaining yourself, but I'm sure that's necessary for survival is entertaining yourself and keeping yourself, uh, optimistic and in a kind of a happy, happy mood most of the time. Um, how did you go about entertaining yourself? Um, I really don't need much entertainment. Luckily. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a kind of person I can just sit, you know, I can just exist and, 
be inside my head and be left to my thoughts, and I'm, I'm usually okay with that. Um, just just observing nature, just being out there in, in that wild of a place was was entertainment enough. Or looking into a fire, or you know, enjoying a meal that I had collected. It was just those simple things, the simple pleasures. That's what that's what really carries you through. And, and whatever things that you have inside your your mind and your heart, you know, that, that keep you going. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, I struggle. I struggle more out in what we would call the real world, the, the modern world. I struggle in, in that world a lot more than I do in the woods. Yeah. Well, as, as a, someone who has a family, I have to imagine that would be kind of a, a hurdle you would have to overcome. So when, when you started having thoughts of friends and family back home, did you, did you let those thoughts in or did you kind of push them away? So you know. Yeah, yeah, you just you just entertain your thoughts and let them drift and shift as they do. You know, one thing goes to the next thought, and um, yeah, you just like eating a cow. You know, one bite at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and you never you never had the moment where you were like, "Oh shit, man, I might I might be losing my mind." <laughs> I think I'd already reached that place long before. <laughs> the show came around. Yeah. So. <laughs> You're like, I'm cool yeah. with this. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. I'm I'm really interested in. I guess I've been reading this book lately called uh, "Stranger in the Woods." Have you ever checked this one out? Yeah, actually, it's funny. Uh, the book is on uh, on the nightstand right now. Yeah, yeah that's. So have you finished it? I'm in kind of in the middle of it right now. No, I haven't. I haven't started it yet. It's uh, it's on the it's on the stack. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's one of the ones to look at. I mean, I'm familiar with the story. I've read articles on it and excerpts about different things. So, I, I have the general gist of it. I just haven't read all the specificity that I'm sure the book goes into. Yeah, and it goes into the crazy specificities. But the idea basically is there's this guy named Christopher Knight, and for something like. 25 years he just lived in the wilderness in maine and he claims that he spoke to nobody the whole time he i think he said one word to a, to a hiker that walked by <laughs> um and and basically survived the winter never lit a fire um and but he had a different you know obviously a completely different experience but he was breaking into houses stealing goods stealing food and and things to keep him keep him uh, able to live in the woods, but but as I'm reading it, they go in. There's a really interesting part that goes into um, the history of quote unquote hermits, and basically the gist is that they they were people sought out who sought wisdom and had you know a little bit more wisdom and positivity and understanding um and other people in society would seek them out for for their knowledge um i guess i just wanted to hear kind of your thoughts on that because i thought that was super fascinating when i was reading it yeah i think i think there's a certain something to that we there are people that are not getting the answers from the available places you know like it's, they're not even considering the questions necessarily because you, you're talking about distractions yeah. and you can be distracted and I'm, I'm guilty of it you can be distracted from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed and not even sit with any of your thoughts for any significant period of time 
And we are. I mean, we're, there's so much that has to that comes at us that has to be done. Our lives are so very busy, uh, and I think that's at the root. You know, ultimately, what what you see in primitive cultures and what humans what their true needs are is we need a connection to ourselves, and then we need a connection to nature, to a land base, to a place that's our home, and then connection with other people, with tribe, and so. It, all three of those are really uh, lacking, and I think that's what gives rise to a lot of the the sickness in our in our culture, the mental health issues that we see. Uh, and I can I can speak to that, having you know been through some of those things, the anxiety, the depression, and and some of that. And a lot of it's just what's it's what's missing. You know, we we crave a tribe. We, we crave to be sitting in a circle around a fire because that's what we're designed to do. You know, we're still hunter-gatherers. We haven't, uh, our, phys- our physiology and our psychology has not changed as rapidly as our technology. And so, you know, we're still hardwired to, to be that, that kind of person. And we're, we're not having those needs met. So it's hard to connect to a place when the place you live in is basically a box. And it's, chances are it's a box that you didn't make. You just yeah. happened upon it, bought it, you know, and and the land base, we're not really connected to that because when you look up, you don't see the stars, you see a ceiling. When you look down, you don't see the earth, there's a floor there. And when you look out to see what's around you, it's just walls. Yeah, well, I, uh, I can't remember what I was reading, but they were talking about the idea of the box, quote unquote, and it's like you sleep in a box and then you go outside and get in a box to drive to work and then you... <laughs> You go into work and you sit in another box all day and then you maybe go to the gym, which is, you know, one more box. And yeah, it's like the idea that you can stay inside literally all day and you're not forced to go outside. Not that it should be a force because going outside should be something that brings you joy and will bring you kind of uh, a little bit of, of inner peace. Yeah. And after the passage of enough time, uh, you know, that becomes our new normal. That's that's how we live, and that becomes the way that, we, that we're accustomed to live. And we, we, we become really, really comfortable. Uh, you know, if you want some water, you just turn this little knob and yeah. clean water comes out. You don't have to really think about water. And then if you're a little bit warm or a little bit cool, you walk over and turn another knob on the wall, and the temperature adjusts itself just fine. So you don't have to think about clothing or fire or shelter. Uh, all we do is we trade our life for money, and then we take that money, and then we meet those needs with the hours that we spent to earn that money, which are hours of our life that will never be relived. And and in so doing, the whole time we're disassociated, we're separated, we're disconnected, and and it's uh, it's not healthy. And and I'm not I'm not advocating that everybody run back out into the wilderness, <laughs> wear a loincloth, and start carrying a spear because no. I mean that's not realistic. Of course not. And the Earth would never support it. Uh, there's the population density is such that most land bases, if all their inhabitants were to try and go back to hunter gatherer, then everything would be depleted. Uh, the the modern Farming and food production that we see on the global scale is what enables the population to do what it does. And it basically comes down to grains, yep. you know, wheat, corn, uh, the production of those grains enable, enable the population to be artificially inflated, which it is. 
I mean, if if we were living on a land base with the the population density that we see here, some, there would be a natural correction. Something would happen uh, where you wouldn't have that many people. I mean, a lot of people are artificially alive when you look at it from just a strictly natural standpoint of survival uh, of the fittest and things and, and all of the medical technology that exists. There's a lot of people walking around that just wouldn't be if we were out on the land. And so there's blessings, you know, to some of this this new stuff. Like, the, you know, we all have a, a phone now in our pocket and we can pull up weather radar. We could call 911 for help. So there's good things that that are there, but, uh, you know, there's a dark side to a lot of the, the technology, too, because once we've become dependent on that, then the old skills die away by virtue of the fact that we don't exercise them anymore. And so now when that GPS goes down, who do you know can still read a topographic map and yeah. use a compass? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like that. And like what I do, rubbing sticks together to make fire with my hands, is is not something that a lot of people do just because there's fire available in so many other ways. You know, electricity is essentially their fire. Uh, the propane stove with the automatic lighter is their fire. So there's there's not a need. There's nothing that would uh, prompt them to to go out and utilize any of the older technologies. Yes, but I think we have to keep it alive. Well, and it's hard because if if it doesn't get passed down from an older generation to a younger generation. It's, I mean, the younger generation won't even know to seek it out necessarily. Right. So, and, and that's another facet of society where I think we lack is there's not that intergenerational transference of knowledge or wisdom because there is an intergenerational contact. You know, it used to be that you would have a small group of, say, 50, 60 people living in community and so you would have grandmother, great-grandmother, great-granddaughter, granddaughter, all together in one place in close proximity, able to talk about what it was like in great-grandmother's time. Yeah. And so you had that oral tradition, and all the history was passed on in a real sense of who and where you come from. And along with that, all of the skills, you know, that enabled her to live all those years. And so she would pass on the things that are really important and that's we just don't see that anymore at least not in a not in a uh, a large enough way i guess there's still some communities where it happens but i think it's probably uh limited you yep. know the amish come to mind you see yep. they they tend to take care of their elders they don't put them in a nursing home they just you've got them living in the house with you they actually and, took care of, with that, of my elder too because my grandpa lived in this small a uh, 60 person Iowa town called Milton, Iowa. And I just remember, um, basically they would, they would come down and he would let them use their, his phone whenever they needed, you know, to make a phone call for whatever reason. And they basically took care of him till he was in his nineties. And I mean, we, we basically are so grateful and thankful that they, they were able to do that because he was able to stay at his house basically until a few months before he passed. So so yeah, just yeah, those are it's it's type of cultures that you know, it's funny, uh and they mentioned this in that Stranger in the Woods book is like is it is it stranger to go out and live in the woods or is it stranger to, you know, work in a uh office building all day long and be in, you know, thousands of dollars worth of debt and stressed out and all that stuff, you know. That's that's considered normal, but the other way 
uh, isn't. And it's, it's just an interesting dynamic there. Well, yeah, society tells us we have to have all these things, you know, and you don't want your children to feel different or disadvantaged. So you've got to do the, the annual Walt Disney trip and, you know, the spring break vacation because you want to be like everybody else. You want to look like them, you know, you want, you want everybody to, to see and you've got to have a vehicle. You know, used to, uh, one family would share a vehicle. Now each individual has their vehicle. At least in in many parts of the country, that are not uh, available to have the the public transportation and things. You see three, four cars in the family. Yeah. You see our homes are so huge and inefficient and bigger than what we need, and and more stuff is just more stuff. And then you've got to maintain that stuff. And so now all the things that you own end up owning you. You have to insure them. You have to maintain them and paint them and change the oil in them. And it's just this never-ending cycle. Yeah. And then we plant grass, for God's sakes, which <laughs> creates more work for ourselves. Yeah. To go out and keep that grass cut way, way down. It's like we're constantly fighting nature, fighting fire, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't. So how do you, you in the show, you, you have this really great uh, speech at one point about balance and and why that's important so how do you balance the kind of you know inner mountain man with the uh western civilization part of you i've really not been able to do that it's it's something that i aspire to i mean honestly i could i could lie to you and say oh i've got it all figured out yeah yeah but i don't yeah i totally don't um you know I, i just got finished teaching a class and you know, so when I'm out there doing that kind of stuff, then that's that's good. But I mean, there's always it's like, how do people find out about our classes? How do we connect with them? Exactly. It's usually Facebook, you know, it's Facebook. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. So at, at some level, if you're going to operate in and amongst society, you know, you you interact with it. Uh, I guess it's a matter of you know just trying to keep things in perspective so that you don't have all your eggs in any one basket. It's kind of a diversification, you know? Yeah. Kind of staying conscious of, of, of what's going on and present to, you know, kind of how am I using technology and is it, am I using it or is it using me kind of that idea? Yeah. 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 And, and to minimize things, to really take stock at your stuff and go, you know, do I need this much stuff or, you know, some things that it's okay to have plenty of, like warm clothes, I think is wise to have. Having food storage is wise to have. But I mean, there's so many people who just have stuff. Yeah. It's just, and it, it's insane. And then we have to have this huge house to, uh, to keep all that stuff. Yeah. How do you balance that with, with your family's wants or your family's needs? Well, it it didn't balance out very well. Um, yeah, you, that's the thing, you know, with like kids coming up, you want them to learn the things that you know because you realize you're carrying this knowledge that is is not common. That's not normal. I mean, for me to walk around with the things that I have inside my brain, or I went through a lot to obtain them, a lot of suffering and a lot of a lot of mistakes. Uh, 
that, that's I think that's what makes a person as good as a teacher is that they failed so so much and so deeply that they can impart to the student, okay, this is this path will lead to failure, and here's why. Yeah. And I've already lived it, so you're saving them that 30 years of of process that you had to go through to get to the the plateau that you're on. You can just go ahead and bring them up there with you and say, you know, here's how to be here on on this skill or whatever it is, and and these other ways won't work, and here's why. And you can just tell them that in a story that takes five or ten minutes instead of them having to live out that that path of life, you know. Yeah. And and that's that's right back to community. You know, we we all have that. We all have our story. We all have things to offer and teach. And no one person can do it all. I just happen to do this one thing that I do, the survival and preparedness and self-defense type stuff. All right, cool. We got our we got a third uh second co-host right now, so All right. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh when you're teaching these wilderness survival classes, are most people coming from regular, quote unquote, regular day jobs or, you know, is this is this part of the balance for them where they feel the necessity yeah. to get out in the wilderness and learn these skills? And so they're going to take a week out of the year or however long and come out and, and learn from you? Yes. Uh, I think there's there's a pretty broad it runs the gamut, you know. We we've got people that that are into it and have uh, tried to learn about it, and they just it's like a continuing education for them. Okay. And then you've got people that are new; they're coming to it fresh, you know. Uh, and then other people just want to get some control back in their lives, some skills. I mean, and it it is the ultimate empowerment to to know that no matter what what might happen, and we're living in pretty scary times. There's a lot of potential things that can unfold. Mm-hmm. In the, in the near future. So, you know, if we're able to meet our basic needs, you know, uh, stay warm and dry, stay hydrated, feed ourselves, uh, provide for our basic security, provide for our basic medical, I mean, there's that's that's a pretty good empowerment there. Yeah. It also puts us in a position when there's an emergency, you know, and, and you're schooled up on these things, it puts you in a position where you can help other people, most importantly. You could help calm all that panic by just saying, "Oh, I, I know, I know what to do here. This is this is what we got to do. I can help us out." Yeah, kind of build some like a confidence builder there. Yeah, and it's it's back to community again. You know, people love the show because we're by ourselves doing it, but ultimately, a lone wolf is a dead wolf. Yeah. You know, we are meant to be tribal creatures. We're meant to have a community, and that's something that I encourage everybody to do. Is Try to build community around you. Get to know your neighbors, um, you know, and, and start sharing in skills and things like that. Because it's, if you were to do a little research, it'd be amazing who all is already around you. Oh, and definitely. You have a retired nurse or a surgeon, somebody like that nearby. You may have people with military or law enforcement experience nearby for security needs. They would understand those needs. You may have an engineer, a person that can fix things. You know, um, may have uh, may have somebody that's got some years on them that would just like to sit around and read to the kids and you know, help people with childcare. If you're going to do a group project, you may have a guy that's really good at gardening. You know, yeah. If all those those skills come together, then you reach a place 
where you can, uh, you know, together each person is going to ultimately be, be better off for, for that interaction. Well, yeah, it's, uh, how do you, when you're teaching the classes, how do you kind of differentiate is the fancy teaching word, but how do you, how do you acknowledge everybody's skill level and, um, make sure they're like, you know, you get, you get the guys who have been to a bunch of these classes and have some knowledge and then you get the complete beginners. How do you balance that out? Well, if I'm doing something that that I know one of these uh, students has, has already done to a level of proficiency, then I will generally throw them something different to do. You know, just like the other day, we were working on some different traps. One person had expressed, yeah, I've done this trap lots and feel really solid with it. And I said, okay, well, have you heard of this one? He, was, he said, no. And I said, well, we're going to work on that one. And then the same with uh, cordage. We were making cordage out of one material, and he was well familiar with that. And I said, well, have you ever made it out of this other material? And he's like, no, I, I haven't. And I said, well, let's, let's learn that process then. And so that way you can teach to the fill in the voids of each individual. Uh, or maybe it's not that you reteach or teach a new skill. It's that you just, uh, you know, you might modify an existing skill. You might show them a new tip or a trick to, to refine a skill that already exists for them. Yeah, definitely. Do you ever like partner them up where you get the, uh, the, the more, uh, advanced person with the novice? I do. Sometimes I've done that. And, uh, and it's amazing, you know, what we call a novice sometimes will teach us things. Yeah. <laughs> They'll ask you a question and I'll, I'll think to myself, well, I've never considered that. I don't know. And and so we all learn from each other. There's there's no such thing as an expert. You know, we're just all out here doing it, learning together. Yeah. What's uh What's your company called? Uh, it doesn't really have a name. I, we, <laughs> I, I called it Wildland Studies Group. Okay. There for a while, but people basically they just call me and we'll book. And that's just mainly for like tax purposes and all that. Yeah. Stuff. But yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, People, people either call me or text me or something, send me a message, and we put it together that way, and I travel uh, all over. Instead of having a physical school, which I have a couple of locations where I can train at, but I, I try to find an existing community where I can come in and, and teach them all of those things as well, like community communications and security-type things and, and kind of coach them on that. So it's easier to bring one instructor to 20 or 30 people than it is to bring all those people to one place. Yep, definitely. Where uh, where are you kind of – where do you, you – I mean, if you had to, like, say you're usually in this certain area of the United States, do you have a specific spot or are you just all over? I, I move around quite a bit. Um, you know, just in the past – few months we've been to Africa we went wow. to British Columbia and we were in Salt Lake City Utah and before that a couple other places in the U.S. now I'm back in the Pacific Northwest and probably end up in Appalachian Mountains here soon I'm actually when when we're finished I've got to call a man in Wyoming uh, who's wanting me to come out and do a class in his area wow so I, I stay pretty flexible yeah and i have to imagine you are just every new location you're advancing your own knowledge because there's different challenges and different uh resources in each spot yeah that's totally that's my job is to go in and you know identify the strengths and weaknesses of an area what are the resources and how best to utilize that's them. so cool that is 
that is the name of the game and so that's that's what i teach in this environment this is this is where i would find food this is how i would do shelter and no two of, of them are alike so it just reaffirms the methodology that i teach that when i go to a place i've never been and i, I do my thing there and it works it just shows that you know the that no nonsense kind of approach and being able to identify it's understanding the principles and not being so fixed on a particular technique but understanding the principles behind that technique you know if i'm somewhere like say in a jungle area where there's bamboo then i should know how to do fire by friction from bamboo and then if i'm somewhere else where a hand drill is appropriate then i do that or an arctic strap or a bow drill or whatever the technique might be yeah you have to be uh, highly adaptable yeah how do you take into account animal safety well you just have to understand the animals you have to understand their behavior um they're all different you know is, um, is there any is there any animal that you're you're definitely like the most weary of well, one thing about snakes uh is they're they're really really camouflaged yeah and and they're, they're super fast and and <laughs> so when i'm in a real snake infested area you just have to really be aware of you know like trying not to put your hands and feet places that you can't see understanding what their habitats are like and where they might be um but as with all animals if you understand them and if you give them a healthy respect and give them healthy space where you're not forcing them into a defensive reaction then you should be fine most anywhere yeah definitely i totally agree about snakes too i've i've spent many a moments almost stepping on copperheads so <laughs> Um, and when you step on them, you trigger a defensive reaction. Yeah. It's not personal. They're not biting you. Just you stepped on them. So yeah. now they're, they're reacting to that. Yeah. yeah. It's not like they're actively seeking you out and they're going to like bite you out of some sort of revenge or something. <laughs> so if you're in an area that's real snaky like that and you've got a high uh, number of bites there usually, then it might be wise to invest in a pair of snake boots or a pair of snake chaps or both. Yeah, and you just wear that, you know, uh, as a protective measure. Just like if you know there's a lot of ticks in an area, it would be wise to use the proper repellents and dress appropriately for that. Yeah, do regular tick check. Well, so uh, you just have to adapt. So yeah. I'm, I my my uh, you know a activity that I participate in is trail running, and I know that it's not necessarily. And I'm in Colorado now, so. I know it's not necessarily the wisest thing to be running by yourself uh, in the mountains at like sunrise or sunset. Um, is there any yeah. sort of precautions I could take? I've been thinking about getting a thing of like bear mace just to carry with me just in case, or is there something else I should be doing? <laughs> Having some spray on hand would not be, would not be a bad idea. Um, but you know, mainly my fear with that would be uh, mountain lions, you know, yeah. cougars, and that sort of thing. If you're by yourself and you're running, then you know you, you are beneath them on the food chain, and that running is going to trigger in them that predatory instinct. Oh, it's running; it must be food. Yeah. Uh, and they hunt full time for a living, and they're great at what they do. Super stealthy. And well, I guess the good news is, you know, if one decides to get you, it'll be quick and painless. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope it doesn't come, come to that. <laughs> I've, I think I've seen, um, I, I, I either saw two bobcat or I saw two mountain lion cubs one morning. Um, 
but they were they were kind of a, a distance away, so I couldn't really distinguish between them. Um, but that was a little bit scary. So yeah, yeah especially in cougar country, you know, you want to kind of avoid being by yourself. Is, yeah, is one thing because they generally, you know, are looking for that that solitary thing. Yeah. <laughs> I guess to kind of just wrap up, uh, just a couple quick questions here. Um, what did you, did you guys, when you were doing the alone show, did all the participants hang out together before it started? Did you have a couple of nights, um, where you were in the same hotel or the same cabins or, or what? Yeah, we, we all got to know each other fairly well for the, uh, when we were in the staging area before we launched, uh, you're going through your camera training together and everybody's housed at the same together and things like that. And then the selection process, you know, when you go through, they have basically like a little boot camp that's about a week long where you yeah, have to assess your ability to survive and all of that. And so we, you know, by the time we actually were dropped, we, we had gotten to know each other fairly well. Yeah. Nice. What was, uh, what was the meal of choice like i have to imagine you guys just feasted before you went out there so what was the meal there well the evening before we dropped was they uh took us to a restaurant and there was a lot of seafood you know like salmon oh, nice. and, uh, shrimp and crabs and things like that and baked potatoes and various desserts and all that we woke up kind of early and everybody was was allowed to have breakfast and and after that, that was it. No food, no water. <laughs> and then we went out to the to the welling station. And then we got on our helicopters or our float planes or our boats, whatever the insertion method was, and then we took off. There's a few good ones out there. I guess one that's really, really good just for general reference, and, and it's written so that it applies to pretty much anywhere on the planet, and that's the SAS Survival Handbook, Survival Guide. I can't remember the exact term for it written by John Lofty Wiseman. Uh, it's, it's very popular and I just, it's good because it's written for the, the British SAS and they find themselves operating all over the world. So there's things in there that would apply to you in the tropics. There's things in there that would apply if you live in subarctic region. Uh, so it's just, it's a good, it's a good reference and, and he's pretty succinct and how he breaks everything down and there's a lot of good information in it so if somebody was starting out and wanted a good reference that would be a nice one i'm in the middle of trying to get a book written um i've been at it a while and it's not just about survival it would be my experience on alone with a lot of survival takeaway and a lot of other things like the like the observations we talked about the differences in and where our culture may may be deficient you know in, in comparison to uh living out there in the woods Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'd love to love to hear about that. And I definitely will will check it out whenever whenever you finish it. Are you are you do you have a timeline or are you? Uh, no, I really don't. I'm just whenever it's done, that's when it'll be. OK, done. <laughs> I would estimate I'm, I'm probably halfway there. I think. Oh, know, perfect. I perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you, Alan, for uh, for chatting with me today. And uh, if there's any way people can contact you, what would that what would that be? Yeah, pretty much the easiest ways for me is just call me, just old-fashioned call. Well, nowadays, people have your number. They're, they're subject to text you as well, which is fine, too. But it's, yeah. uh, my cell number is out there across the globe. It's uh, 706-994-3405. And another way people get a hold of me a lot is on uh, Facebook. I have a public 
Facebook page. It's Alan K. Alone. And I post uh, different things on there from time to time. Uh, wherever we're traveling at, I'll, I'll post pictures or videos. Sometimes I do gear reviews or uh, little tips and tricks pop up on there. So Awesome. Got some good content. All right. Well, thanks for chatting today, Alan. And, uh, and maybe we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch. You bet, buddy. Thanks so much. Good talking to you. All right. Have a good one. All right, that wraps up this week's episode of Like a Bigfoot podcast. Once again, if you enjoyed it, check out all the rest of our episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can follow us on pretty much all the social media platforms uh, by looking up Like a Bigfoot. Uh, One kind of closing thought here is when I think about Alan's story and his experience uh, on the show alone... It really reminds me of the idea that I'm fascinated in. I've kind of been researching and studying lately, but uh, the philosophy of stoicism. So essentially, stoicism is accepting the circumstance that you are currently in and realizing that you basically have no control over some things. So I'm thinking about like in Alan's circumstance, the weather the environment, what sort of supplies were available to him. Those were things that were outside of his control. And so he didn't worry about those things. He didn't stress about them. He didn't think, you know, oh man, it would be so nice if it was sunny in this case. No, those are things outside of his control. So what's the point of even, you know, spending time wasting negative emotions on those uh, rather, he controlled what he could control, his own mindset, um, how he responded to certain stresses, and how he reacted in certain situations um, if obstacles came up or arised along the way. And he went into the experience knowing that obstacles were going to happen. That was just a given, and they were they were obviously going to be hardships. Uh, those were expected, and he basically just spent his energy not worrying about those things, but rather doing the actions that he had control of that were going to lead him to success. Um, and so I try to keep that in mind, and obviously, you know, it's, a, it's something you practice. It's not something that you necessarily can become an expert at. But in times of stressful situations, uh, it's best just to keep kind of the stoicism philosophy at the forefront of your mind where it's like, what can I control in this situation? Myself. What can I not control in the situation? Pretty much everything else. So you can control your own reactions, your own emotions, Uh, your own actions, but you can't necessarily control some of the other things happening. And so the best way to go about any sort of stressful situation is just being conscious of what small positive actions you can take. All right, so that's kind of closing thoughts today. (laughs) You can look up more stoicism stuff. I'm reading a book by Ryan Holiday called The Daily Stoic, and essentially there's like a daily lesson Um, you just read one page a day and it teaches you, uh, about stoicism philosophy, but it kind of puts it in modern day terms. So really good book. Um, the other book we mentioned in the podcast, which I just finished 
is called The Stranger in the Woods. And I found it completely fascinating. It's a story unlike any story you'll probably ever hear. So you can check that out also. All right, that wraps up the podcast this week. I hope you guys all have a great week and uh, we'll get back to you back to you next week. Um, we do have Adam Casey returning to the podcast and I believe he was episode number 30. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that yet, feel free to check that out before he joins us next week. And we just kind of continue his story. He has a fascinating life and he's he's gone through uh, various stages in his life, I guess we'll say. So we kind of hit another stage and another part of his journey uh, in the next week's episode. So yeah, check that out and we'll get back to you then. Have a good week.